Welcome to Music in the Church, a podcast that brings you insight into today's diverse worship landscape by connecting the dots between beliefs and practices so that you can have a happier, healthier ministry. I'm Sarah Bariza, a researcher and church musician living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm Crawford Wiley, a church musician just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Today, we're discussing the Alexander Technique with Dr. Ted Gibbony. Ted is a certified Alexander Technique instructor, and he's the Minister of Music at Ascension and Holy Trinity Episcopal Church in Wyoming, Ohio, which is one of the suburbs of Cincinnati. He has a DMA in organ performance from Indiana University in Bloomington, and he is a regular recitalist. Um, This week, I think he's getting ready to head to Germany, actually, to give a recital there in Holy Week. So he'll be telling us about the Alexander Technique, especially as it applies to church musicians. And one of the interesting things that um, came up in this conversation was something about shoes. Now, it's funny because both you and I, Sarah, I think, had the wrong size organ shoes for the longest period of time. And Ted. It's something that the three of us all have in common. We all had the wrong size of shoes. And it's really funny because you would think that this would be the sort of thing that would A, be obvious, and B, be easily remedied. Oh, yeah. I mean, it costs like $40 to buy a new pair of shoes. (laughs) Yeah, right? And the sizes should not be that different from regular sizes. And yet, I went through two degree programs with the same set of slightly oversized organ shoes with dryer sheets stuffed in the toes. Mm, Mine weren't quite that big. But yeah, I didn't Uh buy a properly fitting pair of shoes until this past year, which is about 15 years since I started taking organ lessons. And how ridiculous does that get? The funny thing is also (laughs) that it really makes a big difference. It does. It really does. If you have ill-fitting organ shoes, be kind to yourself. Get Mm. good ones because it really makes a big difference. It's such an easy fix. Yeah. Suddenly, suddenly the pedals are where your toes are instead Mm -hmm. of Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I saw on Facebook the other day someone asking for a recommendation for their teenaged organ student. Oh, sh- should their student get shoes that are too big because, you know, their feet are going to grow? And in my heart, I was just like, no, no, no. It makes it so much harder to play when your shoes are too big. Yeah. Yeah. It Better does. to play barefoot for a little bit. Wear, wear your socks. Like, don't, don't buy shoes that are too big. Yeah. And you don't always grow as much as you think you might grow. Yeah. Or <laughs> as much as your mother hopes you might grow. <laughs> didn't turn into the basketball player oh well i know right (laughs) another thing that can happen really really easily for an organist uh and i I think this is particularly true if you're on the taller end is that you might not adjust a bench to meet your height so if the bench is is too tall it's really obvious when you sit down on the bench because yeah my feet don't reach the pedals you know gotta get off that's that's what happens to me if someone uses the organ that i regularly practice on and the bench is too high i get on it and i immediately realize i'm up on my tippy toes and i get off and i fix it yeah so that's a pretty clear sign but if the bench is too low you may not notice it at first It's, it's really easy just to sit on the bench and kind of slump over because the bench is too low and not notice it. And I, so I would say if you're sharing an organ bench with someone or if you have a substitute or someone else is practicing on the instrument, it's always a good idea to double check the bench height when you get on. Mm-hmm. Like just as a as a habit. Yeah, if you spend two hours slumped over because the bench is too low, it really takes a toll on your posture and mm-hmm. 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 the fitness of your body as a whole. Yeah. So Ted is going to talk about these kinds of things and also what is the Alexander Technique and how church musicians can benefit from 
Alexander Lessons. Here's Dr. Ted Gibney. Can you tell us about what the Alexander Technique is? The Alexander Technique, the easiest way to explain it quickly is to give a little definition and then parse the definition. So the definition that I like to use is the technique is an educational approach to personal wellness through self-conscious movement and poise. Now, I'll parse it. The educational approach is that it's, it's something we're all students of. And there are lots of self-help, and there's a whole market for, for how you stay healthy now. But the Alexander Technique started in the early 20th century, but it's a, it's, a, it's a personal approach to learn about the body and how it works so that you can participate in your own wellness. And you do that through understanding how the body is built, how the, the bones and the skeleton, the torso and the limbs and so forth are designed and how they function and how they do it in the optimal or the best way. So the Alexander Technique is an educational approach. We're all students of personal wellness through self-conscious movement, how we use our bodies, and poise, how we balance our bodies on this good earth. And Alexander did use the word poise as opposed to posture. For most people, posture implies how you hold yourself. And that, for Alexander, was, was a no-no because uh, holding yourself creates muscular tension. And it's the tension patterns that cause physical problems, be it arthritis, oftentimes scoliosis, injury, pain, the kind of tension that uh, resides in the body causes uh, long-term problems. Where did the Alexander Technique come from? Sure. Alexander, uh, fascinating, and, and he, would have, he would be described as one of the world's characters, I think. His grandparents, ironically enough, were British, and the Britain in the, the heyday of the colonial empire had some of the same issues we have now, in that in the colonial empire, the way to work with people that were causing a problem to society was that you incarcerate them. And at, at that period of their history, they had what were known as debtors' prisons. And Alexander's grandparents lived in Wales, and they were incarcerated on the island of Tasmania, south of Australia. And so that's where Alexander grew up, and he grew up with the aspiration of being an actor. And in his 20s, he developed solo programs as a Shakespearean actor. He would, he would have gigs and, and make speeches and do excerpts from Shakespearean tragedies. And as he was doing this, uh, he had trouble with his voice. He was hoarse, and he would lose his voice. And so he went to the doctor, and uh, the doctor, multiple doctors, told him, well, there's nothing wrong with your voice. You just need to rest. And so he rested and got his voice back. And when he went back to acting, he lost his voice. So getting to a certain point, he got fed up with the medical profession and was self-aware enough that he thought, well, what I'm doing as an actor must be causing my voice problems because if I don't act, I'm not hoarse. So he set up a series of mirrors, and over a period of months, he observed himself while he was acting, and he discovered that he did certain things with his body when he was acting. And this self-awareness and self-analysis, he learned that it was the way he was holding his body the way he, he was pushing his shoulders back so that he would be truly masculine in the masculine concept of that time. He was thrusting his head down and back to reach the back row of, with his voice. And this was all, all of this was setting up tension that in the end focused on his larynx and caused him to lose his voice. 
So in learning how to stop the habitual movement that was causing the tension and how to retrain himself so that he could speak, and he in fact did have a a short career before he got into health work full-time, as it were, he learned how to get his voice back, and that is holistically what he developed into the Alexander Technique. As a young man, it was the first decade of the 20th century, he immigrated to London. And that's where he his the base of his career, and, and he must have been very gregarious and outgoing, and he created a, a practice for himself with what we would describe as the upper crust of the intellectual and educated class of the time. George Bernard Shaw, Aldous Huxley were some of his, his early clients. And so, of course, the 20th century, at that time, they were getting ready for the First World War. And so he had the health culture to deal with that he was a part of at the time, and they were preparing for war. And so military training, the sort of the stomach in, chest out, thrust those shoulders back, be a man kind of approach to to health was what he had to work against, and he was an alternative approach to, to wellness. Some of the ideas he developed, the Alexander Technique, for instance, when he was thrusting his head back, he was creating an extreme tension in his neck. And he discovered a trait about that's applicable now to all vertebrates in that the relationship between your head and your spine, he called it the primary control. So that was one of the biggies for him. Uh, The second of the biggies is that we now know through psychology studies that by the age of three, children develop habits of how they use their bodies, how they react to external stimuli, and part of that stimuli is tension. So those habits are formed and they're largely unconscious. So how to become aware of that is is sort of akin to psychoanalysis in in that. If I had trauma as a child or I was injured, and, and so what are the habits that I carry in my body But we're not aware of the muscles that we engage when we stand up and sit down. And that's in part a part of uh, divine creation, as it were, and and that would be too much to take in. But coming aware of that and stopping the bad habits, he called that inhibition. So the primary control and the inhibition are the two, two central concepts. And stopping an unconscious habit is not easy. It's, it's not like taking a pill. It's becoming aware of what you're doing unconsciously and creating a, a sequence of, of sort of events that you stop and you think about what you're doing and then learn to do it in a healthy way. What should someone expect if they go to an Alexander Technique session? So the Alexander lessons are at their best a private affair, as it were, that you go into a room and all the therapist needs is a massage table and a chair. But you go there, first of all, to, it's called the chair turn. Uh, You get in and out of the chair with the therapist observing and then the therapist with his or her hands on you to become aware of what your physical habits are, where there is tension in your body that's either habitual or stored, and then over the long haul to to learn how to make that better. And that is one example uh, that... (laughs) I occasionally like to roll out is that after studying this about 10 years and the the Alexander certification program is three years, 1600 hours of this work. After my certification was over and I still go back for lessons periodically, but my teacher got all excited one day and said, Ted, you're finally learning 
how to balance your head on the top of your spine without holding it in place. It's a long-term kind of solution that's quite in conflict with our own culture where we like to go to the pharmacy and get a pill to make it better. But it's, it's a matter of taking responsibility for your, your own body and your own health and learning how to make it better. So the chair turn, habits. The second part of the lesson is kind of the delicious part, and that is the therapist works for the release of muscular tension and that work you do on the massage table. It isn't rocket science in some ways, and a lot of the best teachers have an intuition of discerning where there's held tension in your body, but you spend a half hour of a 45-minute lesson or so releasing tension in, for instance, your legs. Is that like a person consciously relaxing parts of their body? No, the, the therapist uses his or her hands somewhat like a massage therapist in that it's a hands-on, but the hands are used to affect muscular release. And the massage therapist uses pressure to move muscles around or to change uh, the, the timbre of the muscles. The Alexander teacher uses a very light, non-intrusive, the, your client is always fully clothed. And so you, use, uh, you go through the, the legs and the feet, the shoulder girdle, the neck and head. And over uh, that half hour of time, you go through the different muscle groups and, and release tension. So you're, you're very relaxed. And the goal of the teacher is kind of wonderful, but their their job in a, in the 45-minute lesson is somehow to make, make you better in the sense that you're less tense, you're more relaxed, that you're more self-aware, and, and the client doesn't have any responsibilities. And the teacher is trained, and it took a lot, it still takes a lot of work not to judge uh, that, oh, somehow I'm bad because I have arthritis in my neck or or that I'm not using myself properly. Because a lot of our habits we learn and they're unconscious. And so learning that, becoming aware of, and then having a, a roadmap over time how we might make it better. So the Alexander Technique is teaching a person how to do that long term? Yes. A lot of it is not willful by the client because in a lesson you start to experience what it, it's like. You open neural pathways that have been asleep. And you experience what it's like to get up out of the chair without thrusting your shoulders, without pushing, without engaging unnecessary muscles. You learn that over time, and uh, that is not willful. There are a lot of things, and there are activities that we learn in terms of studying breathing, in terms of how we carry our, our bodies and how we balance. There are, we would call them exercises, but they're a new way to exercise or a different way than our common culture exercises in that we learn we want to build muscle, we want to lose weight, we have specific goals. For Alexander, the exercises or his activities are about releasing muscular tension. The way we breathe, releasing muscles so that the shoulders might float, practicing ways and self-awareness as you walk, how you use your eyes, the vestibular system for balance. There are a lot of activities that, that you can engage in. And part of my learning curve now as a Alexander teacher is to engage people with some of these activities so they learn more about the technique. Can you tell us how you got into the Alexander technique? Sure. I'm a lifelong church musician. I love to make music in churches and work with choirs and, and plan services. And uh, one of my passions is playing the pipe organ. And I was in a particularly wonderful church in Memphis, Tennessee, and working with choirs. And I started to have pains in my neck and did not know why. And I started to lose control of my limbs, my hands and feet. And that's a problem if you're a pipe organist. 
and it got worse, and it was at the point that it was going to change my career drastically. I had heard of the Alexander Technique, but it was only by serendipity. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. There was one teacher in Memphis, Tennessee, still, as far as I know, and uh, she taught me in the course of a month how my frame is about 6'3". There are very few organs built for people that are taller than six foot. I was sitting on a bench that was too low, and the choir loft there, the choir was somewhat above me, and I was practicing with my, and here I'm like Alexander, my head was down and back. And so I was starting to get arthritis in my neck. And because of that arthritis, I was losing control. Within a month, the teacher taught me to be self-aware of that. And also in the lessons themselves, my spine was lengthening so that the arthritis that was there is no longer in play. And I was learning about what I was doing as I was playing. I was pursuing my passion. I was making music and loving it. But so how, how to relearn how to sit at the keyboard when I'm playing. And all of us that work in, at computers sit in a <laughs> chair over a long period of time have, have similar issues. But it was the self-healing that the technique enabled that got my attention. And I was at the point of having to discontinue. I quit playing recitals. And so at any rate, the yucky symptoms went away. And I got a new interest that brought me to Cincinnati to pursue certification as an instructor. And I'm finding more and more that more, more people than not get into the technique because of something, uh, because of some pain or some problem that they encounter that causes that if the technique helps, then you're in. Alexander was a, an actor. His first clients were actors, and he was known as the voice man because he worked with his voice and other voices. But as they developed it into a holistic approach, he worked most with other people that, were, that had repetitive stress issues. Dancers, musicians that, that play the same, whatever style of music you play, you play the same chart or you play the same score over and over and engage the muscles in, into habits. So he worked a, a lot with artistic folks. And so that's now one of my primary audiences or, or where I go for clients but also people that, that have, if you have, like me, a pain, a pain in your neck, or if in walking you have developed arthritis in your hips, if you have lower back pain, if you have scoliosis, if you have writer's cramp, if you're an actor and have stage fright. So specific problems that create tension in the body that the technique addresses. Do you have any advice specifically for church musicians, like organists and choir directors? Yes. And a lot of the Alexander work, we're terribly individual about our bodies. Everybody, every body is different, and how we use them is individual. And so the, the technique is best learned on a one-on-one. -on -one. But in terms of working with other organists, working with singers, there are certain things that, that I tend to have a soapbox about now in terms of being aware of the bench height. And this requires a teacher to help you so that you're sitting in an optimal way, that you're not hunched over towards the console the way you use your shoulders, that you're balanced on your sitting bones. So how you sit is crucial because whether you're an organist or a pianist or a harpsichordist, if, if you play a keyboard, you do a lot of sitting so that you're doing it in a way that doesn't, as in my case, caused arthritis. So silly things... 
for organists, the shoe size is crucial, that you get a, a shoe that is flexible and expands with your foot. In my case, I had shoes that were, I thought that getting a tight fit in the shoes would be wonderful because my big feet tend to hit more than one note at a time. And I was for a long time wearing shoes that were a half size too small. And then you graduate from college and you get a tuxedo and you get patent leather shoes. And my feet were, were being bound. And <laughs> when I first got arthritis in my neck, heavens, who would have thought? But the first thing to go in my playing was my pedal technique. And that was because my feet were bound in a way that that tension became a focus. And I couldn't control my pedaling. And so now I, I really uh, get after organists to, to be aware how they sit and what their shoes are like so, so that they, <laughs> they don't become old and crotchety like I am and have, have issues that were caused unawares. I mean, caused by just how you're using your body in an unhealthful way. The technique is you're interested in it because you're having problems. Uh, the other enticement for the technique, particularly for, for actors, for musicians, is that wh when you start to experience what it's like not to be carrying around tension. You develop a lightness and a, a healthful feeling that is quite wonderful, and you feel good. And also, you're, you become engaged in your own self-health or, or your own wellness and how to make yourself, how, how to consciously improve how you use your body. And certainly with, with the religious communities that I work as a musician, uh, the body in, in some, some scripture, in some writings is described as the temple. And it is a marvel into how to, to work with this marvel and respect it. Alexander was one of the great respecters in, in the history of health awareness, that you learn to use your body at its optimal, at its best, so that you're healthier and happier. And... Thank you for this wonderful conversation. You're welcome so much. Great to talk with you. Lots of fun for me, too. That was Dr. Ted Gibney, a certified Alexander Technique instructor. You can find more about his work on the show notes at musicandthechurch.com slash 15. And that's it for this week's episode of Music and the Church. We're taking a few weeks off for Holy Week and Easter, and we'll be back here on Wednesday, April 11th. Until then, you can get in touch by emailing us at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leaving a voicemail at 513-580-4282. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share it with friends. The best way for people to find this show is word of mouth. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at musicandthechurch.com slash sign up. Our monthly newsletter is coming out this Sunday. We'll be back on April 11th. 